I'm confident that that nonviolent spirit can be and will be reawakened in the American people to engage the problems of the present moment in a way that reflects the very best of who we are and what we could be. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview people we call cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good and ask them our one question in all that seems to be going wrong, what could possibly go right? Uh, and today's guest is the incredibly articulate and interesting John Wood Jr., who is a former nominee for Congress and former vice chair of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County. He's a noted writer and speaker on the subjects of political and racial reconciliation. And John's written work has been featured in publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Examiner, and the uh, Colette Magazine. He's a national spokesperson for the bipartisan organization, Braver Angels, and lives in South Los Angeles with his wife and three children. So the interview with John Wood Jr. Okay, John Wood Jr., thank you for joining me on What Could Possibly Go Right in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking them to peer into the near future for us and tell us what positive developments they see emerging that might blossom into things going right. Um, and your work with Braver Angels, an organization that brings Americans together to bridge the partisan divide and strengthen uh, the democratic republic has really impressed me. You say you're working to depolarize America, and I encourage people to look into Braver Angels and know more. You use beautiful words, words that inform my life as well, empathy, love, community, goodwill. So what do you actually see changing in the landscape of polarization? And, and for example, I aspire to reason, but I react with my gut. Mm -hmm. um, communities I care about seem to be, oh, my dear, <laughs> my cat has joined us. She may, she may <laughs> fully join us, but anyway, people get used to my cat um, and, and she cannot be barred from anything and, and shut up. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, communities I care about seem to be losing ground in a stalemated political system. And I do believe in our better angels, but honestly, I do wonder where the openings for something braver and more angelic are. And I watch the tide of polarization growing, and I don't want to retreat further into my tribe or design my activism in ways that will drive us further apart. I do want to stand up for justice and repair. And, you know, it's us, it's tough. So shine your light on the road ahead. Where do you see opportunities arising for depolarizing our nation? What true notes are you hearing what movements or projects or strange bedfellows? I'm sorry, I'm laughing because she's trying to get into the picture. It's okay. But what tipping points, even with all the public animosity, mm. here you go, yeah. what could possibly go right? Indeed, indeed. Well, Vicki, first of all, um, thank you for having me here. As far as I'm concerned, your cat is very much welcome um, in the conversation. That's one of the charms of the uh, the Zoom era. You know, cats and kids tend to be regular guest stars uh, <laughs> in plenty of the conversations that I have. So, ah, there she goes. Here she goes. Hi there. She. Uh, there you go. There you go. Um, it's a 
Honestly, it's it's a great question. It's perhaps the most important question uh, a person could possibly ask. You know, what could possibly go right in this situation? And yet, I have to admit, <laughs> uh, goodness, you might be just about the first person to have ever asked me that question so directly. I mean, people certainly ask, "What can we do?" But you know, what can go right? It causes us to reflect on the fact that there are, in fact, things that are going right. And, Things that are happening that indicate the fact that for all the problems we face in terms of the the fissures and ruptures in our social fabric and our democratic society, that there are nevertheless seeds of hope that I think may yet blossom uh, and grow into um, uh, roses and trees of progress and of unity. Um, and so what is the landscape of promise then uh, in, our, um, in our current context? I think that certainly to start with, um, there is an innovative uh, and uh, committed space of very competent, very passionate, very driven uh, Americans uh, who uh, are from across the political spectrum and, you know, the, the, the relative proportions of that um, don't necessarily map evenly onto uh, the demographics of our broader politics. But even so, within the world of philanthropy, within the world of media, uh, within the world of politics uh, directly, and in the nonprofit space, uh, organizations like Braver Angels, uh, and a wide slew of others, National Conversations Project and Listen First, Weave the Social Fabric Project, the American Project from out of Pepperdine uh, University, which is dedicated to inspiring a communitarian sort of revival within the conservative movement. Um, institutions like the, the Fetzer Institute, uh, the Einhorn uh, Collaborative, um, and, um, and a number of others are incubating uh, social innovations that are allowing us to develop methods whereby the American people can meet in a spirit of goodwill, come to understand one another better, and then leverage that mutual understanding into actual collaboration and shared work on the ground and within local political, uh, within local governments on college campuses um, and beyond. Uh, for the purposes of advancing our society um, in a fraternal sort of spirit, right? And um, that space is currently growing. I mean, you know, there's greater interest coming to this sort of work um, from uh, different corners of the world of philanthropy, increasingly from corporations that want to be a, a part of the solution when it comes from polarization, uh, from folks who are, you know, in some cases active in politics, but particularly from folks who have been in government, whether in Congress or in presidential administrations or just locally, who uh, have the space to sort of reflect on the system and its problems and who are trying to apply their experience, connections and expertise to building up this culture of goodwill in American society. Uh, you have actual work that's taking place. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, uh, fair for me to say that Braver Angels uh, is a leading light uh, in that constellation of organizations and enterprises that seeks to establish the structure of social repair in American society, and which seeks to tell a story about who we are as Americans that makes room for us to 
come back together in goodwill. Um, but we're not the only ones. It seems to me that what could go right at bottom is that we could be in the midst of witnessing as awareness of the problem of polarization and its true significance grows, a coming together of forces from across American society who are willing to buck the trends within the parties, within the dominant sort of polarizing narratives that come to us by way of cable news and talk radio and social media, et cetera, uh, in order to band together uh, in a suite of activities and in the amplification of a narrative of shared American community that could allow us to stimulate a change in our institutional cultures and our politics um, from the demand level up, you know, from the grassroots um, on up, with key participation from influential, you know, uh, leaders and organizations from across society. So, you know, I, I think that I think that that is what can go right. I think that ultimately that is what will go right. And, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm a bit of an optimist by disposition. I, I'm not I'm not entirely certain I could be, <laughs> be as effective as I hope I am in this work if I didn't have a, a, a tendency towards optimism. But, you know, even in identifying um, all of those currents, I do think that the other thing that can go right, which is really, I think, an essential part of the realization of this um hopeful vision that I'm spelling out for you, is that as a country, uh, we come to remember uh, the higher-minded traditions of moral and social idealism that have inspired this country towards social progress in the past, such that we might rally towards some of these ways of, of engaging in, in politics, and relating to one another uh, in our own current time. And so for myself, a great example of what I hope we would come to remembrance of as a, as a country and something that I talk a, a fair amount about um, is the uh, philosophy of nonviolence and the tradition of nonviolence as it was taught and pioneered by Martin Luther King Jr., uh, among others, Bayard Rustin, et cetera. Uh, the philosophy of nonviolence teaches that uh, Dr. King taught that love is a social value that can be applied to social, uh, social and political questions. It essentially was a spiritual movement of social change. And while King, of course, was, uh, was a Baptist uh, uh, minister, one did not have to be uh, religious or of any particular religious uh, faith uh, in order to embrace the power uh, of, that, of that moral teaching. I think that in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, there has been a tendency across the political spectrum to seek to sort of uh, pick up on some aspects of Dr. King's political leanings. Uh, folks on the left will frequently make note of the fact that Dr. King uh, was, well, you know, sort of democratic socialist in his economic uh, views and, and pushed for radical political change in some senses and, and claim him, therefore, as a man of the left. And folks on the right today will say, uh, yes, but he was uh, but he was a religious Christian. Uh, he was a, a person who spoke eloquently of the American founding and and uh, therefore seek to claim him as, in some respects, sort of a, a man of, of, of religious conservatism, perhaps. But ultimately, 
what we have all forgotten, I think, even as we sort of um, idolize Dr. King as a figure in history in the forms of holidays and statues, is what the actual applied substance of his teachings were uh, beyond phrases that we remember, such as we wish to see a day where um, our children are judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. That is true. But that sort of America has to itself be a consequence of the ethos of love animating our interactions with one another on every level of society, but certainly in the context uh, of our democratic uh, and political life. And um, that, um, and so Dr. King used the term love, and, and by love, he, he was referring to something specifically that he would have identified as agape love, which is not necessarily a romantic or an affectionate love of, of friends, but rather a love that is itself an overarching goodwill uh, for our, all people, including your opponents, including your political enemies, including people who may be racist, who may be judgmental towards you, including people who may hate you on the basis of merely the color of your skin or some other superficial aspect of your identity. And so I frequently use the term goodwill in my own speech because sometimes that's more accessible for some folks, but it's pointing to the same, the same virtue, the same virtue of agape love in social action. And I, I, I suspect that the memory of that movement and some of our, some of our greater moral and, and religious uh, traditions and teachings in American life, while I think the technological and commercial complexity of modern American life causes us to think in short-term um, short-term sound bites, and we all have a desire for, for quick uh, social and political victories. We think about what it's going to take to, to win the next election, to raise $100 million for a certain cause, to get, uh, to get a million followers on Twitter or subscribers on YouTube and whatnot. And, and we think in, in quick uh, periods of time about quantifiable ways to measure social impact um, but I think that a commitment towards goodwill as a way of being in democratic society, one that calls upon each of us to adopt an internal understand, uh, attitude of empathy and understanding, even towards those we disagree with, will succeed not only in laying the foundation for more durable social progress for America collectively, but will also allow us to commit to that hard work in a way that is most inwardly liberating for people who not only want to see social progress for humanity and for the United States of America, but who also would like to do so in a way that allows us to be the best versions of ourselves. And so the victory that we all ultimately must seek in America today, I believe, is twofold in that fashion. And because it is in our history, because it is in our heritage, it is also in us, our capacity to pursue that sort of change uh, in that sort of way. And I'm confident that that nonviolent spirit can be and will be reawakened in the American people in such a manner so that it will allow us to engage the problems of the present moment um, in a way that reflects the very best of who we are and what we could be 
uh, as Americans, as neighbors, as children of God, if, if that language may resonate with some, uh, as it does with many. Um, and as people who ultimately seek to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, if we can commit to that principle, then our tactics and our methods and our arguments and the stories we tell will flow from that. And we'll observe a pathway for social healing and reconciliation and, and progress that can set the stage for the next generation to be uh, to to take that to take the idea of the beloved community a step further in time. And uh, I believe that all of those things um, can be what goes right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so here's. <laughs> um, the tableau of looking at you is so amazing because you're sitting between two headphones. You know, so you're actually articulating the space in between. And the two headphones, you know, seem to be the left and right. You know, and I, I would like, you know, let me stand in the left because, oh boy, I am. <laughs> sure. You know, and I say, you know, I agree with you. Goodwill. Yeah. Very important. Agape love. Very, very important. Mm -hmm. However, and I do that, but they don't. Mm -hmm. right. It's mm -hmm. like, I think part of the, the, you know, what you're talking about is, is social trust that if I engage in this process that John is talking about, well, I'm not going to get my head handed to me. I'm not going to be, you know, sliced and diced by somebody who's far smarter than me and figures out how to trick me. I'm not going to be insulted, you know, and the, the fear is intense about engaging. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could do a little um, simulation for us about, <laughs> you know, you just, just like put on the left headphones and then put on the right headphones and mm -hmm. speak the truths of the, the people who are louder in our society, whose voices are so loud, it makes us lose trust in ourselves that we could have a trusting society. What could be said that would actually soften the carapace of the different sides so that they'd be willing to engage? Do you know what I'm at? I, I'm pretty sure you understand the experiment I'm asking you for because you're so good at sure. articulating the, the the opinions and the fears and the mm. stances of the of the two different sides with a great deal of respect. You know, so mm. see what I, see what you can do with that. Indeed, I think so. Uh, let me give it a shot. Um, now, of course, there is a spectrum of personalities, groups, and experiences on each of the broad hemispheres of our political divide, and obviously left, right, red, blue, are binaries that don't capture that complexity. But I think that uh, I might be able to do justice to a representative pairing of perspectives here. Um, I can imagine and certainly know um, many folks, um, let's say folks of color on the left, uh, I'm most deeply familiar with the African-American experience being black, uh, half black myself. And so to speak to speak to that, um, one can imagine a person who has lived uh, lived their whole life or who've grown up in an area where um, their reality, their reality uh, is poverty. Their reality is living in a a closely confined 
uh, urban center um, where the buildings uh, have been built uh, with no regard for um, aesthetics, where police sirens sound, but law enforcement uh, are folks in whom you have very little trust because they oftentimes disrespect you and treat you harshly and, and seem to look down upon you, where such person goes to public schools where the teachers don't seem at all times to be committed to their progress because teachers themselves are overworked and under-resourced or they find themselves having to wait in long lines for public assistance only to be met with bureaucrats who are disinterested sometimes and helping them navigate a complex system of public benefits because they too are overworked, they too are exhausted, becomes very little space for human empathy. And then you go home and you turn on uh, the TV and uh, I'm date myself a little bit because I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then you, you look at 90210 and you look at Melrose Place and so forth. And, and you see a, a televised representation um, although this this could have just as easily, you know, referred to uh, to uh, uh, various TV shows in the 1950s and whatnot that black folks would have been watching, you see this idyllic representation of America, and it's white America, and everybody uh, drives uh, drives a nice car and has a home with multiple bedrooms, and you know they're not uh, they're not towering uh, uh, ugly buildings blocking out the sky and you're not smelling smog in, in the air and you don't worry about violence when you step out into your streets. Now the America that is beamed into the lived experience of folks uh, in this circumstance. And in that context, it's very easy for a person to think that, you know, this, this white supremacist racist nation was not built uh, with me in mind. The very people who are held up to me as the as the paragons of American virtue, the founding fathers of our society, were people who, largely speaking, uh, held my ancestors in chains. Therefore, you know, why should I give a damn uh, about you and your complaints about you know the welfare state or or immigration or you know you Republicans, you conservatives, and so forth. When as far as I can tell, uh, you're the type of person who would have had me in chains and probably still wants me in chains today, right? Uh, why shouldn't I look at you as racist? And I think that for individuals uh, who are engaged in conversation with somebody who may be coming from some version of, of that experience, and it's millions of Americans, certainly millions of Americans of, of, of color, I think, in this country, uh, historically and contemporaneously, you know, there has to, there, one has to start with a recognition of the depth of the experience from which somebody is, from which somebody is speaking. The humility to say, to say, you have an experience that, that I can't know. Um, you have endured things or had sufferings or, or struggles that are different from mine in, in, in deep. And I respect that, you know. And I understand the earnestness of what it is you say. Um, let me say something about my experience and why I believe that this country is or can be a land of opportunity for all of us. And let me explain why I have the beliefs I do about the Constitution and li limited government and how I think that can lead to a freer, more just society uh, 
for everybody, for you and for me and for folks of, of, of all colors, right? Um, you know, I mean, I'm throwing out language that could be used, but whatever language comes from the heart, if you start with the place of love and goodwill and empathy for the other person, that empowers you to be able to search out the language that is most sincere within you, to be able to hear their experience, to speak it back to them so that they know that they've been heard, and having established the trust uh, that comes with identifying yourself as one who honestly will listen and who cares about understanding the viewpoint of the person to whom you're speaking, you set yourself in the position to be able to speak your truth in a way to where your truth may be heard as well. And suddenly we are in dialogue together and we can reason together. I can also think of somebody uh, who may have grown up in the Appalachian South. I can think of someone who might be from might be from Tennessee, might be from Alabama. Um, uh, I can imagine uh, a person who has himself grown up in poverty, who has himself turned on the television or gone to school and has listened to folks who may be celebrities, people who may be sophisticated intellectuals and politicians, um, people who have resources and privileges, who may be the same skin color, but who come from a different universe, um, talking about the sins and flaws of America in a way that puts the full blame for America's problems and inequities and, and oppressions on the shoulders of people who, who if I'm such an individual watching, watching such talk, uh, share my faith, people who are fellow Christians, people who are rural, people who, uh, who uh, um, find themselves without college educations, without college degrees, people who are white and have thought of themselves as white and have been told that they are white, but who are then told that whiteness is the source of all of America's evils. And for a person who has grown up with this identity, for a person who has grown up thinking of themselves as a religious Christian, a person who happens to be a, a white Southerner who has in the cultural memory of their family and the in the inherited memory of their family, family, the recollection of the North having marched through the South and laid waste to the land of their heritage, and that generations later, though their own ancestors were probably not slave owners, because even during the Civil War, very few, as a percentage of folks, uh, white Southerners actually owned slaves. Nevertheless, though you are a person who would, who would think to him or herself that you don't judge uh, another person by the color of their skin. You would, you would help a black person or a person of any color on the side of the road if they found themselves stranded, perhaps out of Christian courtesy. You nevertheless feel yourself as being labeled the the stepchild or the enemy uh, in a country where uh, the culture of Hollywood, the culture of the university, celebrates diversity, celebrates inclusion, but only extends that inclusion to people of multiple colors, but of broadly progressive social sentiments, people who have transcended the backwardness of religious belief and conviction. Um, a person like that is willing oftentimes uh, to, to, to thumb their nose um, to the world, to the mainstream, at least, uh, and to retreat to the embracing arms of those who would amplify their grievances and their anger as folks on all sides are willing to do. Um, 
and refuse to look at anybody who comes from perhaps the elite quarters of society or certain parts of the country or certain parts of their politics as as a genuinely fellow American and someone they could regard as a friend. But if you were to engage such an individual in conversation, if you were to find yourself in that context, and if similarly you were to say to them that that you have a certain you have a certain experience and, and I hear you talking about your religious and your moral convictions, and I understand the depth of that, or I understand that you're telling me a deep truth right now, uh, and that these are the things that give you an anchor for understanding understanding the world. And I think that that's powerful because it's clearly powerful in your experience. Um, let me tell you a little bit about why I believe what I believe about why it is the government should have an active role in lifting all people up, and how it is that how it is that secular reasoning or logic is is an important way of pursuing truth even as i want to honor the foundations of your faith and how it is you see the world um, let me share with you my experience and how i come to my perspective um, so long as you are able to demonstrate true empathy uh, and true goodwill for that individual and his or her origins and concerns it's far more likely that such an individual will be open to hearing what you have to say. And if you can acknowledge them as your fellow American, as your neighbor, somebody you wish to, someone you share a country with for whom you hope the best and for whose children you hope the best, um, then such a person just might become convinced that you mean well towards them, whether, whether they start off agreeing with you or not. And, you know, it's only in that sort of, conversational context uh, informed by a deep spirit of of empathy of of goodwill of love really um, of agape love that we can uh, discover the space for trust to blossom you know as you as you mentioned of course you know we can certainly have the experience of well, I showed up uh, in this way, but the other person did not respond or reciprocate in kind. Uh, the truth is, is that that's going to frequently be the case. Um, Dr. King did not believe in nonviolence principally as a tactic, although certainly nonviolence uh, informed the tactics of the nonviolent movement. And there are all sorts of sophisticated conversations to be had about the tactics of nonviolence. Uh, and I would like to think that even at Braver Angels, uh, in a different, uh, very different time and and uh, different context, we are innovating tactics of nonviolence. But true nonviolence arises as a way of life that we inevitably will fail to perfectly love up to, but that nevertheless is an internal moral aspiration. And I think that what we find is that certainly in certain cases, you can change a person in a single conversation. That does happen more frequently than you might think. But even if all one succeeds in doing is opening up a small space for reflection on the part of somebody you may be engaged with, um, to plant a small seed of doubt in them with respect to what may have been their pre-existing assumption that you were something less of an American, less of a human, and more of some some demonized caricature who they could write off as being 
authentically well-intentioned or thoughtful or grounded in reality, then you've opened up a pathway for their entire way of looking uh, at the world to change and to become more hopeful and more understanding um, of others. And, and because you will have demonstrated that hopefulness and that understanding towards them. This has consequences. You know, there are dominoes that are set in place wherein changing, changing one heart or even planting the seeds of change winds up having a ripple effect that spreads through families, that, that spreads through communities, that spreads through institutions. And it's patience demanding work to be, to be certain. Um, because the changes that nonviolent engagement leads to, well, in the civil rights movement, of course, you know, the, 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 uh, the Montgomery bus boycott was in 19, started in 1956. Um, by 1965, major legislative changes had swept across the country in ways that would remake our society for all time. So I wouldn't downplay the possibility that in the right spirit, you could make observable changes within a relatively short period of time. But the ultimate victory of the civil rights movement and the nonviolent movement in particular was that it also led to, I think, a genuine shift in the conscience of America, even if we have so much further to go in terms of realizing a society of perfect equity and of genuine equality of, of opportunity. But hearts did change on a large scale. And you know, I honestly believe that I would not exist if that were not the case, because I'm the product of, uh, of an interracial marriage uh, between a black woman from inner city L.A. and a, and a white southern uh, father. And and even within my own family story, I, I can testify to the changing of hearts, the changing of minds related to the issue of race in ways that have everything to do with the changes that sprung from the nonviolent movement, not just in terms of the law, but in terms of the culture of our society. And so these changes have a tendency of sticking, even if they take a while. When they take, they take, I believe, and um, you know, sets the stage for, for, um, for progress to endure. Wow. I, um, we're going to have to close soon just for time constraints, but I do want to reflect some things back from a, um, a hot, hothead progressive <laughs> is <laughs> that, um, yeah, number one, patience. Number two, we're, we're, we're doing the work of decades and possibly generations and possibly centuries. Mm -hmm. So um, impatience at not achieving the goal of the current outreach is it's really important to like, you know, as I was just imagining just the so many demonstrations that happened with Martin Luther King. I mean, so many where, you know, brutalized, you know, pushed back, disrespected, but it was the dignity of, of keeping going in that spirit of agape that was, you know, but it took a while to soften you know, it took a long time because the attitudes were really uh, congealed. Uh, and then the other thing is, is you, you cannot speak at someone without acknowledging their reality and really get very far at all. 
Right. You know, so I think that the first move that you're talking about, not as a strategy, but as a, a sincere outreach, you know, like, I really get it. I'm really learning something about your point of view. And then the other thing that you said, which is so important, is that let me tell you how I came to my point of view. People are not reflective about how we arrived at our point of view. If you talk about it, not as a certainty, but as a process, suddenly, you know, even that you're sort of in a unity of people who have been thoughtful about their point of view. I've come to this after reflection. And so mm -hmm. you're in the space of reflection. I just think That's that right. this is, um, you know, just this brief demonstration that you've done has profound implications for at least, you know, hotheads like me, um, you know, but I think there's a lot of hotheads, you know, maybe some of them that are calmer than I am, but, um, and I think, you know, it just, it actually, you know, the original purpose, what could possibly go right? This kind of inquiry, as invisible as it is in the hothead media environment, is happening and I'm you know sort of like I have a more of a thirst for it now having listened to you mm. so I just want to thank you so much if you have any final words great but if you just want to you know sign <laughs> off that's kind of fine too sure well I just want to thank you Vicki uh and your cat uh for being <laughs> such a <laughs> such gracious gracious hosts for me in this conversation and for folks who are uh interested um in the work uh of political depolarization, but really advancing our way towards the beloved community and for folks who are interested in sort of learning more about that work and, and um, some of the things I've talked about here today. I welcome people to visit braverangels.org, join us as a member and volunteer if so moved, um, and to remain hopeful and optimistic in that part of the human soul that genuinely does aspire uh, towards love and towards truth and towards genuine peace, positive peace uh, between us. Um, that, that is a real force in human events and um, we are all available to it if we choose to be. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>